Well, good morning. Quick show of hands to get us started this morning. How many of you would say that your schedule and your life have been hijacked by the Christmas season? <laughs> you can kind of hear it in like the hesitancy when you hear someone ask another person, so are you ready for Christmas? And they're like, yeah, right? We are all kind of like, I, I don't know. I, should I be? I don't think I am. Like, there's getting all the trees up, and then there's trying to get the lights up that undoubtedly don't work the way that they did last year when you took them down. And, and then there's going to your son's choral concert, and your son's instrumental concert, and, and your daughter's Christmas dance recital, and all of the performances, right? And then there's all the white elephant gifts, like, oh yeah, I've got six different white elephant gifts I need to get for these six functions, and which one am I supposed to take to which one, right? And it all gets to be a little bit overwhelming, doesn't it? And certainly there's a lot of beauty in the Christmas season, but there's also a lot of busy. And amidst everything going on, it's kind of easy for us to miss what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, as Linus would say, right? I mean, sometimes we can make it the whole way through the Christmas season. We can check all the Christmas check boxes and yet still miss the opportunity to read and to marvel at the what and the why of the Christmas story. And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dig into the what of the Christmas story and beyond that, and maybe even more importantly than that, we're going to dig into the why. We're going to answer the question, why did Jesus come? Now, you may or may not be aware that the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels. And gospel means good news, and in this case, the Gospels chronicle the good news of Jesus' life and his ministry and his death, and his resurrection. And you can probably name the four Gospels. We can name them together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? So there's four Gospels, but did you know that only two of them actually include the story of Jesus' birth? And those two Gospels are Matthew and Luke. The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John do not include it. Mark starts his gospel by introducing readers to John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, who prepared the way for the ministry of Jesus, and then jumps right in to talking about Jesus' incredible ministry. And John doesn't really tell us what happened related to Jesus' birth, but he focuses more on, on why, on why Jesus' arrival changed everything. And it's kind of intriguing that John was one of the ones who didn't mention the birth story, because if any of those four guys knew the details about the birth story, it was John. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he looked down to John and he told John, take Mary, take my mother Mary, take Mary as your mother. And he told Mary, take John as your son. Basically, he was saying, I've been looking after both of you, and I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. So I need you to look after each other. You are family now. And so tradition says that John cared for Mary into her old age. But you can only imagine, as the two of them spent time together, all of the stories that came out, <laughs> all of the stories that John became privy to that maybe no one else was privy to. John probably knew what Joseph's first words were after laying eyes on newly born baby Jesus. He probably knew the color of the swaddling cloths that Jesus was wrapped in. He probably knew the length of Mary's labor. John knew so much, and yet as knowledgeable and experienced as he was, as an old man, as he writes this book, 
This is how he begins to tell the story of Jesus. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's kind of like he's saying, hey, just in case you're one of those people that opens up a book and only ever reads the first chapter and then puts it away, (laughs) the birth story is nice, but here's what you can't miss. Here's what you need to know, that God showed up. God showed up in a human body. He left perfect, holy heaven where he was praised endlessly by the angels, and he traded it to spend time on sinful, messy earth to be with us. He says, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And this is where we get that phrase, Jesus, light of the world. Because when Jesus showed up, he came to bring light to the darkest corners of our lives. Jesus came to shine light on the hidden things in our hearts and our souls, whether hidden intentionally or unintentionally. He came to shine a light on our motivations and our behaviors. And what did this light reveal? That bad behaviors are symptoms of a heart that is disconnected from God, and that sometimes even our good behaviors aren't proof of a heart that's honoring God, because it's not just about our behaviors, it's also about our motivations. How many of you are familiar at all with the Enneagram test? Some of you guys, a decent number of you. The Enneagram is another kind of personality test that categorizes you into one or a few different uh, of nine personality types, and my primary type is type three. It's titled the Achiever. And threes are success-oriented, they're pragmatic, but they're also very image-conscious. Our basic fear as threes is to be viewed as worthless in another person's eyes. And so our basic desire is to feel valuable, to feel validated. Now here's the thing with us threes, and maybe even if you're not a three, you can relate to this. Because we want to impress others, because we want to be affirmed, we will work really hard to make it look like we're doing the right thing, even if we're actually not. (laughs) We'll posture to make it appear that we have it all together, that what you see on the outside is what's actually on the inside. But unfortunately for us, looking like we're doing the right thing often tends to be more important for us than actually doing the right thing. And I think Jesus would call us three types Pharisees. Because even when it appears that we are righteous, oftentimes our inner motivations are not. Often, we're following the rules not out of love, but out of wanting to please people, out of wanting to look right in other people's eyes. And that is some of the darkness that Jesus came to shine a light on. That is something that we need Jesus' light to uncover and to heal in our lives. But it's not just us threes that have a tendency to hide our shortcomings, is it? It's not just us threes that that shy away from unpleasant emotions. This central Pennsylvania culture has Pennsylvania Dutch roots (laughs) that say basically, hey, anything unpleasant, nope, shove it down, right? Um, Any uh, brokenness, nope, shove it down. Your response to all of that, just work harder, (laughs) keep up a good front, right? But you know what that's like? It's like when we ask our kids to clean up their room, we give them a little bit of time, and then we go in to inspect their work. And at first, we walk in and we're like, 
wow, this looks really good in here. But then we start to dig a little deeper, and we look under the bed, and we open the closet door, and we see the, like, pile of clothes that is only standing there by the door being closed, and they all fall over, right? We find all the socks that have been missing for months that we wondered where were they. We find all of the, the contraband snacks that your kids knew they weren't allowed to eat, and so they snuck it into their room to eat it instead, right? We find the juice boxes that weren't cold anymore, and so they weren't finished, and so now they've fermented into wine, and so your kids could literally be carded for what's in their room. (laughs) And in some ways, we all live like kids trying to hide their mess. (laughs) And when God comes in for inspection, we pretend like we have it all together, like we don't have doubts or pain or sinful motivations or desires. We don't want to admit when we're broken. We don't want to appear fragile or like we don't have it all together to anyone else. And I can't speak for you, but I know for me, living that way is exhausting. John tells us that Jesus came to shine light on our darkness. He came to invite us to an existence, to a relationship with God where we don't have to live that way anymore. And you know what you get when you bring something that has been darkness in your life into the light? You get the opportunity to experience healing and restoration. You get the opportunity to experience freedom from that darkness. John takes it further in verse 12. He says, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. God shows up in the person of Jesus, and John says to all, to me, to you, to your mom, to that crazy uncle that we all have, right, to all who receive him, to all who are open to him in our lives, to all who believe in his name. And I want to stop you there for a cool sidebar, because in the original language, Greek, the phrase that John uses here, this believe in phrase, In Greek, that phrase doesn't actually exist. It's kind of like the Christian phrase, love on. Have you ever heard someone say, they're going through a rough time, I just need to love on them, right? Sounds kind of creepy, doesn't it? (laughs) It sounds creepy to me and I still use it. Why? Because sometimes we can't quite find the words to say exactly what we need to say. We use love on because we don't just want to communicate about love, We want to say, we're going to put that love into action. We want people to tangibly experience our love. And so we say we want to love on someone, and that sounds super inappropriate. (laughs) But for John, he takes the Greek word pistuo, which means to love, and then he adds the Greek word for in after it. And it makes this phrase that when translated literally would be to love in, which makes absolutely no sense, right? And so why does he he make up a phrase? It's because he can't quite communicate what he wants to without doing so. He wants us to catch the meaning that loving Jesus means that we actively entrust ourselves to him. We, We put our trust in him, we love him, and when we do, John says, Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. Now think about what it means to be someone's child. It means that that you are specifically known and specifically loved by your Father. It means that everything He has, everything He is, He offers to you. 
Why did Jesus come? Why is the Christmas story important? The story of Jesus is important because it isn't just history or religion. The story of Jesus is important because it's personal. It's a personal invitation that John circles back to at the end of his book in John 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written, Jesus' story was told, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that underline this next phrase, by believing you may have life in his name. See, up until this point, a relationship with God was not attainable. We couldn't take hold of the life that was truly life because God wasn't here, (laughs) he was there. And our sin had separated us from being able to be in relationship with him. And Jesus came to be that bridge to take away the separative effect of our sin. And not just our sin collectively, but your sin individually. John wanted you to know that Jesus died for you. He died for your sin. The reason the birth of Jesus mattered. The why behind the what is that because of Jesus' arrival, each of us now have a personal Savior. Now, real quick, before we get to the what of the Christmas story, here's here's where I think sometimes we have a tendency to mess this up. Sometimes, like Jesus' apostles, we tend to think that that we are the ones who get to set Jesus' agenda for us (laughs) and not the other way around. Like the apostles thought that Jesus' agenda should be to overthrow the Roman rulers and to restore the position of the nation of Israel. And so for three years, they kept waiting for him to do something that Jesus never planned to do. You can see them kind of wondering, like, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, if you're the deliverer of our people, then when are you going to get to Messiahing? When are you going to get to delivering? And it took them until after his death to realize that Jesus didn't come to change circumstances. He came to change souls. And like his apostles, we often try to set Jesus' agenda for our lives instead of the other way around. And you know what this really is? (laughs) It's just more evidence that we have some control issues. (laughs) Because instead of asking Jesus how he wants to work in our lives, we try to put him to work in a few little segmented boxes. Like, Jesus, I've got a little bit of a financial mess over here, so I'm going to put just enough of you in the financial box that you can clean that up. Or, Jesus, I've got this sickness I can't get over. I just want enough of you in the health box to get me past this sickness. Or, Jesus, I'm in this toxic relationship, and so just enough of you in this relationships box that you can clear this person out of my life. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about those things, or it's not that Jesus doesn't have the power to to take care of those things because he does care and he does have the power to act in any area of our lives. But Jesus doesn't work for us. (laughs) We're missing the point by trying to get him to exercise some of his power in a few self-selected areas of our lives. No, Jesus wants full access (laughs) to our whole lives, He didn't come to save us from our circumstances. He came to save us from ourselves, from our doubts, from our selfishness, from our tendency to worship created things instead of the creator. 
He came to expunge the darkness in our souls. He came to be our Savior. And so if John were here, I think his question for us this Christmas would be, do you believe in? (laughs) Not do you believe that Jesus existed, not do you believe that he did what he did for the world, (laughs) but are you showing that you believe what he wants to do in your life by entrusting yourself to him? Are you inviting his loving light to shine into the hidden areas of your heart to transform it? Because that is what a relationship with Jesus is all about. So now that we've framed it, now that we've grabbed a hold of the reason for the Christmas story, let's look at that Christmas story. And we're going to start with the Gospel of Luke. Luke's my guy. Some people say they have a spirit animal. Luke is my spirit apostle because Luke valued accuracy. He valued order. He valued the actual. I mean, listen to how Luke starts his gospel, and this isn't in your outline, so feel free to just listen, or if you want to follow along, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is what he says. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke's like, listen, I talked to the people who were there, I did all the research, I did all the interviews, and so here it is, here is an accurate, orderly, actual account of how this thing went down. So let's look now at the beginning of Luke's account, chapter 1, verse 26. It says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And you can already see just in the first two verses that Luke is a detail guy, all of the details that he includes there. Verse 28, the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. You'd have to imagine Mary's not seeing angels every day, and so she's greatly troubled at his words, and she wonders, what kind of greeting is this? What is this all about? But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And so that's the story Mary gets which, if you put herself in your shoes, is a little bit overwhelming, right? She's a teenager. She's never had sex. She lives in a culture where having sex with someone other than your spouse can be punishable by death. And now here she is, and she's going to be pregnant. And as if that's not crazy enough, she's going to be pregnant with the Son of God? Like, how do you process that, right? If you're married, you just keep trying to go back to sleep, hoping that this is one of those dreams that wakes up into another dream, that wakes up into another dream, that eventually you like actually wake up and kind of snap out of it. But in Mary's case, this was real life. (laughs) And once she did swallow this news, one thing that probably got her a little bit excited was the name of her son. In Aramaic, the language she most likely spoke, she heard the angel say, you are to call him Yeshua, 
Another name that Yeshua gets translated to is Joshua. And here's why this is important, because when Mary or when others in that day heard the name Joshua, they would immediately think of Old Testament Joshua, the man who scripture says the Lord was with, who delivered his people through military battles. Yeshua means the Lord is salvation. And so Mary thought, could this be true? Could my son, Jesus, be part of delivering our people? Now let's jump over to Matthew's gospel for a minute. And it's interesting to me to read each of the different gospels to see what stood out a little bit differently to each of the gospel writers. And this is just like you and I, right? If, if four of us are all together and we're witnessing the same events, we're all going to tell the story slightly differently based on our personality, based on what we experienced, right? And so here's how Matthew shares the beginning of the birth story in chapter 1. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now picture being Joseph. Joseph's like, even though this whole marriage thing was, was kind of arranged, I, I'm actually really fond of Mary, and I want to believe the best about her, but but how did she get pregnant? I mean, we haven't even had our wedding yet, and even if I believe this story, who else will? And so I picture a little bit of Joseph's panic, and yet at the same time, I picture Joseph's excitement over what the angel shares, because Joseph was well aware of the prophecy that God would send a Messiah, would send a deliverer, and I can imagine he wasn't just wondering, is this what's happening? <laughs> Is this what God is doing right now? But also, is this really happening to us? Like, could our Jesus, could our son, could he be the Messiah who has come to rescue us? Not really sure how to feel about that. And then in the same sentence, as soon as he hears the name Jesus and all of the images that that name conjures up, he hears the angel say that Jesus will save his people from what? From their sins, right? And I can hear Joseph kind of being like, I, I don't know about that. Like, that's not really a pressing need. Like, we've already got this elaborate be saved from our sins system between the temple practices and the over 600 moral laws that we have. I don't think being saved from sin is our problem. We need saving from Rome. We need saving from that crazy King Herod who we talked about last week, right? And so you got to wonder if Joseph was thinking something like, God, this seems like you might kind of be wasting a savior. But whatever he was thinking, verse 24, it says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. So we've got this teenager, Mary. We've got Joseph, who she's betrothed to. And we've got an angel showing up to each of them to share this crazy news with them. <laughs> What's next? We're going to jump back over to Luke, to Luke chapter 2. 
It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And at first glance, those four verses are kind of verses that you read and you're like, okay, that's great, but like, what's next? Let's get to the impactful start of the a part of the story. But I want to stop because there is significance here that I want to make sure we don't miss. See, Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, and so they expected to give birth in Nazareth, or at least close to Nazareth. But the prophecies predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, some 90-ish miles away. So you wonder, like, what gives? Well, God is God, and God does what God does, and so somehow he elbows somebody in the Roman Empire to convince Caesar Augustus that a census needs to be taken. And when a census is taken, everyone has to go back to their family's homeland. And where was Joseph's homeland? Bethlehem, of course, right? And so sneaky as God is, he uses Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on the planet, <laughs> to make sure that Jesus is born in the place that it was prophesied that he would be born, and Caesar Augustus the whole time is none the wiser. See, even when we don't see it, God is always working behind the scenes. And so Mary, getting close to her due date, square in the middle of the uncomfortably large stage of her pregnancy, begins the 90-mile trek with Joseph to the town of Bethlehem. Now today, a 90-mile trek is just an hour and a half of cruise control on the turnpike, right? But back in those days, it was not quick or easy to travel 90 miles. It took days. It took maybe even up to a week. And Mary was not riding in a comfortably, fully equipped minivan, right? She rode those 90 miles on what? Actually, we, we don't actually know what she rode those 90 miles on. Although the picture books show Mary on a donkey, the Bible never actually specifies. And so, as you're picturing this story, you can kind of picture whatever animal you'd like. Maybe Mary was riding on a woolly mammoth or bouncing in a kangaroo. Or maybe not. <laughs> maybe she rode in a bumpy wagon. Maybe she even had to walk those 90 miles, which at eight and a half months pregnant, I hope for her sake, was not the case. But either way, the story continues in verse 5. It says, He, Joseph, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So it's time for Jesus' birth, and all of the hotel rooms in town had already sold out. I guess Mary and Joseph got there a little bit slower than everybody else did. And so they're forced to find another place to stay, and they end up in a stable or maybe even more likely in the opening of a cave where farm animals lived. And either way, when Jesus is born, Luke says that they wrapped him up and they put him in a manger. Now we look at this manger on the stage, and it looks serene and it looks beautiful, but you know what a manger is, right? It's a feeding trough for horses and cattle. 
And so 24 hours before this, an animal's saliva may have coated the entire inside of that manger, and now here we are using it as a crib for a baby. And then here comes another angel, this time appearing to the shepherds in a nearby field who were pulling third shift. Now, have you ever stopped to ask the question, like, why the shepherds? (laughs) Like, why not the people at a bar at a nearby inn? We don't know for certain, but what we do know about the shepherds is that based on those hundreds of moral and social laws, the shepherds were viewed as ceremonially unclean, which meant that they were not permitted to worship in the temple. I guess when you walk behind thousands of sheep, you step in and you touch sheep things that make you a little bit gross. (laughs) But to make it even worse, even though they weren't welcome in the temple, They were still expected to provide sacrificial lambs for those who were welcome in the temple. Talk about rubbing it in. And so here's God, and in all of his culture-shattering ways, he chooses to announce the birth of his son first to this group of people who were the least welcomed in his house. Isn't that just like God to do something like that? Let's continue on. Here's what their interaction with the angel looked like. Verse 10 It says, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host, a bunch of angels, appeared with that first angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. You know what I love about this interaction If you look at the first three verses in that passage, what common word do you find in each of those verses? It's the word, you. (laughs) The angels didn't just happen upon the shepherds by accident. They were there intentionally with a message just for them. And maybe you can relate to the shepherds. That maybe because of your position or maybe because of the choices that you've made or the choices that have been made to you, You feel unclean, you feel unworthy, you feel unlovable, you feel undeserving. And just like the shepherds this morning, you need to hear that Jesus has been sent for you. That God is saying to you right where you are today, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that should bring you great joy. Jesus is here, and he's here to love you. He's here to save you. And do you want to know how important you are? You are invited to celebrate. You, as dirty and as unclean and as messy as you may think you are, you are invited to come and to worship him. You are welcome in his presence. And so just like I hope you will, the shepherds jump at this invitation. Verse 16 says, So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. 
What a life-changing event for these shepherds to realize that they were not forgotten by God, that God saw them, that God loved them, that God had made a way for them. And I love that their natural reaction was to share it with others. Listen, I don't know where you've been in your past. I don't know the things that you've done. I don't know what mess you feel like you're mired in or stuck in that you can't get out of. I don't know what darkness exists in the recesses of your heart. I don't know what even this week you've been hiding from God that you think makes you unlovable. But here's what I do know, that just like the shepherds, you are not forgotten, that God sees you, that God loves you, and that God has made a way for you. And the Christmas story, this story that we marvel over, this story that brings so much joy to our hearts, it means something. Because this baby would go on a journey from the cradle all the way to the cross. I want to go back to the Gospel of John, because while John didn't stare, share the story of Jesus' birth, he did share the words of Jesus from a conversation he had with a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. And these words may summarize why Jesus came into the world better than any other that you'll read anywhere else. I think it's a verse you'll recognize. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in, there's that phrase again, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And here's the part that we didn't memorize as children for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Made personal, God did not send Jesus into your life to condemn you. Other people may condemn you. You may condemn yourself. But here's the truth. Jesus doesn't condemn you. He doesn't want access to your life for the purposes of condemnation. No, he wants full access because he wants to save you. He wants to set you free. He wants to give you a life full of hope. This Christmas, whatever gifts are on your wish list, whatever gifts you think you need, the gift that you really need to accept is a personal, life-changing relationship with your Savior. Think about what receiving just this one gift could do for you. It could save you from your doubts about whether God could really love you despite all your shortcomings. It could save you from your selfish motivations that you're not even always aware that you have. It could save you from your angry outbursts. It could save you from that secret addiction that you don't want anyone else to know about. It could save you from your propensity to make relationships all about what you can get instead of about true love. Jesus is here and he's offering you this free gift of a relationship with him, not to condemn you, but to save you from your sin. All he needs is your permission, your consent, your willingness to open up your life, to open up the doors of your heart to him and to let him in. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? You know, as you think about the home of your heart, some of you have never given Jesus permission to enter that home before. Maybe you've been watching him out the window. 
Maybe you've even gone outside a few times and asked Jesus to lend a hand, but you've never actually asked him inside to save you. You've never given him consent to enter your heart and to shine his light on the darkness inside of it, and I get it because that feels really risky. But listen, Jesus himself took a huge risk. Without knowing whether or not you would accept him, he left heaven to live among us, ultimately to be killed, to take on the punishment of our sin, all so that you could have the gift of a life-changing relationship with him, so that you could have a personal savior. And so if you want to accept that free gift today, I want to invite you now just to pray this prayer quietly in your heart. Pray, Jesus, I need you to save me from myself. I need you to rescue me from my sin. Jesus, I just don't believe in who you are. I I believe in you. I embrace you as my Savior. I lean into you. I entrust myself to you. And I give you my consent to change my life. Thank you that you came to do just that. Thank you for loving me the way that you do. You know, and for others of us today, we've been able to call Jesus our Savior for quite some time, but as you hear about why he came, as you realize the the limited access that you've actually given him to your life, you've discovered that salvation is not a one-time event. You realize that you still need to be saved. That while Jesus is in your house, that you haven't given him consent to enter every single room. And so this morning, you need to pray, Jesus, I still need you. Savior, please, keep saving me. It feels risky, but I'm going to open up another door in my heart today. I'm ashamed of what's in that dark room. But I trust that you came not to condemn me, but to save me. So Jesus, put your arm around my shoulder and walk into that dark room with me and heal me of my darkness. Set me free. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us enough to come to each of us personally so that we wouldn't have to keep settling to live life the way that we are, but that we could be set free through a relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, the light of the world. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.